Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we discuss recent updates to the management guidelines for ARDS. Hi, my name is Nita Kadir. I am an associate professor at UCLA, and I am the associate director of the medical ICU there as well. Hi, I'm Serena Sahathia. I'm an assistant professor in pulmonary and critical care medicine at Johns Hopkins, uh, and also the director of quality and safety. Um, And really happy to be here and talk to you. Yeah, really excited to have both of you. Um, This uh update is long overdue. I was really excited when you both agreed to do this podcast. Today we'll be discussing um, the paper that was published in the Blue Journal, an update on management of adult patients with ARDS, an official ATS clinical practice guideline. Um, And this uh, publication has already garnered 16,000 downloads, so very important, very timely, especially post-COVID. So Nita, maybe you could let our audience know why did you update uh, the ATS ARDS clinical practice guidelines? Well, this update was, as you said, long overdue. Um, the initial set of ARDS guidelines issued by ATS were published in 2017. And since then, quite a lot has happened in the world of ARDS, um, including the publication of trials like ROSE and EOLIA, DEXA ARDS, and then you know, there was that whole COVID-19 pandemic thing where ARDS was in our faces every day. So the update was long overdue. Um, and that is why we decided to go forward with it now. And what's really impressive about this publication is that you had 38 authors or 38 members who participated in um, uh, this update. And as you mentioned already, um, COVID, although devastating, did offer us the opportunity to answer some really important questions that we haven't been able to address uh, previously. Uh, Serena, why do you think you updated the guidelines? Well, I think it's for all the reasons that uh, Nita said. There have been a number of really landmark trials that have come out um, since the last publication of the guidelines in 2017. Uh, we actually, the the co-authors and chairs of the group actually got together in the middle of the COVID pandemic when so many people were were asking, oh, how do we do this? What do we do about this? How do we think about what we should do in the context of these new trials? And it was actually COVID that inspired us to to kind of form a group and say, we need to produce something that can better guide the clinicians that are dealing with this every day. And of course, guidelines take time to do. And and, um, by the time it got published, we were out of the the main peak of the pandemic. Um, But really, the goal was to make sure that our guidelines in this space were more reflective of the evidence that had been generated so rapidly in the last, uh, well, gosh, seven years now. Yeah, what amazed me about the pandemic also was that folks kind of forsook all the evidence practice that they had at their disposal and decided to develop new practices that weren't evidence-based. And in some cases, that caused uh, a lot of uh, deaths uh, that were entirely uh, unnecessary. So maybe you could jump into your methods. Um, This is an evidence-based update. Uh, Serena, what were your methods to ensure that you followed um, evidence-based practices in formulating these guidelines? 
Yeah, absolutely. So ATS, uh, we're grateful to them because they have um, a robust methodology that you're expected to follow anytime you produce a clinical practice guideline. Um, so we primarily use grade methodology, which has been used in, in most clinical practice guideline development and, and updates. Um, we had four co-chairs. Uh, this was kind of the, the group of people that came together to say, what are the important questions that need to be updated? So Nita and myself and then Lavina Munchi and Charlotte Summers were all co-chairs. Um, and we were somewhat overseen by Eddie Fan, who was the, the first author of the last clinical practice guideline, Alan Walkie and, and Bram Washwork was our chief methodologist that was assigned by ATS. Um, so we got together and, and we developed uh, an initial series of potential PICO questions. So um, patient population intervention, the comparator and the outcomes that we were interested in. Um, and once we had those preliminary PICO questions that we wanted to address, we invited content experts um, from kind of a diverse group of, of people who had expertise in ARDS, who had expertise in ARDS epidemiology, uh, all the clinical trials that had been done, pharmacology, pharmacology and physiology. Um, and we, we separated them out into these four committees to address these four questions that we were most interested in. And then each subcommittee had a assigned methodologist that was under Bram's, uh, Bram's oversight. Um, you know, we formalized the PICO questions and then the panel ranked outcomes um, that we thought would be important for a patient with ARDS. And we tried to think about what are the outcomes that are actually potentially important from their perspective, not just the clinician perspective. Um, and with that, we came up with kind of mortality, long-term health-related quality of life, long-term cognitive impairment, short-term mortality, and cardiac arrest. Those were the outcomes that were most important to, to we thought were most important to patients. And then we had a patient representative that reviewed kind of our PICO questions and also reviewed the potential outcomes. Um, each question had actually already received a recent high quality systematic review. And many of the authors or the experts that we invited to be on the committee members were the authors of those systematic reviews. So we took those systematic reviews that had been recently published, and then we updated them with a literature search. We use grade methodology to generate these pooled estimates um, and to assess the certainty of the evidence profile. Once we had that, our subcommittees convened to review the evidence and to develop initial recommendations. Um, and we used the grade evidence to decision uh, framework in order to kind of standardize how we were grading or evaluating each of the evidence profiles and the recommendations. And then we came together as a full panel, so brought all the subcommittees together to review kind of the, the draft recommendations. We, there were many meetings with detailed discussions and, and uh, many rounds of input and approval. Um, and then also had a patient representative who reviewed the draft guidelines and provided feedback as well. Um, so it was many layers and rounds of, of discussion at both a subcommittee level and then a full panel level and, and uh, came together to with, with our recommendations that are in the paper. Yeah, Nita, I'll pull you in here. Um, I definitely agree. The, the the topics that you discussed were definitely questions that clinicians uh, in the field are encountering every single day. You know, do I give steroids? Yes, no. When do I start a BV ECMO? 
when should I initiate neuromuscular blockades, high peep, low peep? Um, uh, any additional comments, Nita, um, on the methods before we move on to the key findings? I think Serena covered that in quite a lot of detail. Um, I was, you know, we use a pretty rigorous methodologic approach here. And I think, I think the one thing I would add is because there was such um, robust discussion um, and because we were very carefully going through grade methodology, all of our recommendations were actually come to by consensus. We didn't end up having to vote um, because everybody actually, that entire group of 38 people um, ended up agreeing on on everything that we came up with. Great. So let's jump into um, the different interventions. And for our audience, we'll be looking at figure two. And what I really like about this paper, and I haven't seen this done before, both figure one and figure two, where it's, you know, crystal clear, (laughs) Strong recommendation against, conditional recommendation in favor, strong recommendation in favor. That figure one is really great, especially since you separate according to severity of ARDS. And then in figure two, you go through the intervention with the population precautions and practical considerations. So if the um, listeners are able to look at this paper while Nita and Serena are chatting, I mean, this is really great, very well out, very crystal clear. So let's start with the first one, uh, corticosteroids. Nita? So in terms of corticosteroids, um, we issued a conditional recommendation in favor of the use of corticosteroids for ARDS. Um, I think, I will say for me personally, this was one of those recommendations where, um, you know, going over what once all was said and done, going over the evidence um, basis for all of this, it was something that really went against my prior beliefs. Um, I almost didn't want to, this is, this is, steroids were not really part of my clinical practice um, in all comers for ARDS before. Um, and I almost didn't want to believe um, that we were going to um, issue a recommendation in favor of it. But once the, once the evidence is there, you know, staring at you in the face, um, you really have to confront your priors um, and, um, you know, go with what the evidence is telling you. Um, that being said, this is a conditional recommendation. Um, so while there was moderate certainty of evidence that uh, steroids uh, improve outcomes in ARDS, uh, mortality, uh, days on the ventilator, days in the hospital. So the, these are you know pretty important patient-centered outcomes. Um, there are a lot of there are a lot of considerations. They come with risk of harm as well, of course. So that was one of the reasons we thought that that figure two was really important because many of the recommendations we issued actually were con- uh, were uh, conditional. Um, so you know there are a number of precautions to think about um, before u- utilizing steroids. Um, we don't know exactly the right timing, the right dose, the right duration, um, and we also don't know are there certain subsets of patients who um, will benefit more from steroids and and conversely others that may be harmed more uh, by steroids. So I think immunocompromised patients are a good example of that. So while they're at highest risk for uh, adverse events, they're also the at highest risk for poor outcomes from ARDS. So they're they're unanswered questions um, in within the realm of uh, corticosteroids in terms of you know, patient population, dosing, timing, et cetera. 
And then, so I, I appreciate the fact that you say there is no optimal dose, no optimal steroid. Um, so the question obviously is, are we doing hydrocortisone 50Q6? Are we doing solumedrol 60Q6? Very different doses. What practice, and this isn't holding, uh, asking for you to say what the guideline should be, but in your practice, since you've um, adopted conditional steroids, what do you tend to use, Nita? So I tend to use, if the patient has a condition for which a course of steroids uh, dosing-wise, duration-wise has been delineated, like severe community-acquired pneumonia, I will use you know, the, the, I will use the, uh, uh, course that has been delineated previously in the literature, um, for all others, uh, you know, I think any, any of the courses outlined in some of these trials would be appropriate. I personally tend to use the DEXA ARDS, uh, dosing because it's, it's simple, straightforward, um, and, um, you know, easy to apply to most patients. And then Serena, any clarifying comments on corticosteroids before we move on to VV ECMO? Uh, I agree with uh, most everything Nita said. Um, I think that it is very clear that steroids benefit some patients. And, and the, the problem with some of these guidelines and the reason why it's a conditional recommendation is that there are nuances in, in every recommendation that we issued. Um, so, you know, for, for us in, in the supplement of the paper itself, if you take a look at the electronic supplement to the readers, um, there's actually a listing of kind of all the trials that went into the recommendation and the different steroid formulations that they used. Um, and it's probably reasonable to use kind of any one of those based on your specific patient characteristics. Um, but there is a, a range of unknown um, that we tried to, to reflect in the text, even though we couldn't always reflect it in the, the formal guideline itself. Gotcha. Okay, so let's move on to BV ECMO. Uh, what were your recommendations on BV ECMO in ARDS? Um, I guess I'll I'll take that one. Um, that was the committee that that was the subcommittee that I chaired. Um, so for VV ECMO, we uh, made it, issued a conditional recommendation in favor of its use in selected patients with very severe ARDS. By selected patients, we essentially mean those who met. EOLIA uh, inclusion criteria. So those with a P to F ratio of less than 80 or a pH of less than 725 with a PCO2 of at least 60. Um, we think it's important to really consider um, patients' chronic uh, health conditions before putting um, them on ECMO, um, which we also which we highlight both in the text and in, in figure two, um, and think about conditions that would be associated with an increased risk of futility, um, such as immunosuppression, multiple organ failure, older age, or, or chronic medical conditions that lead you to have a life expectancy less than a year. Um, I think these are important considerations really for any intervention, but particularly with VV ECMO because it's such a labor-intensive, resource-intensive therapy. And its use, you know, usually if you – we most places do not have an unlimited amount 
of ECMO beds, um, be, whether it's limited by machine staffing, um, beds themselves, whatever it is. So um, selection is, 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 it's important to be judicious about selection, um, more so with uh, VV ECMO because of the resource considerations um, than, than some of the other therapies that we highlighted. We also did have some concerns um, about uh, real-world application of this recommendation, not because there are concerns about the data, um, but many people had concerns about what this might um what this might imply for health equity. Um, so ECMO is not available universally. Um, there are some places and people who are going to have more readily available access to it um, than others. So in the United States, like urban versus rural comes to mind. Um, when, you know, when you're talking about thinking carefully about selection criteria, there is data that exists um, suggesting that certain groups of people based on um, socioeconomic background, gender, um, may be less likely to be considered favorable candidates for ECMO due to presumably clinician biases. And I would imagine potentially like where these patients are located and their proximity to um, an ECMO center. So these are all concerns that we had, but um, in terms of the evidence for its use, you know, pulling data from both Eolia and um, Caesar uh, seemed uh, we the, the data suggested moderate uh, uh, certainty of benefit from from its use in in very severe ARDS. Yeah, I really like the fact that you made the point uh, that you should initiate lung perfective ventilation, prone positioning, and neuromuscular blockade before considering initiation of ECMO. And I think uh, that points to the need to um, utilize our resources uh, uh, better. Um, Serena, I'll turn to you on PEEP, because I believe you are on the PEEP group. Um, maybe you could comment to us on what your uh, strategy is for PEEP um, therapy, and what did you define as high PEEP? Because this has been an area of contention. Is high PEEP, you know, more than 10? Is it more than 15? Is it more than 20? Um, fantastic. Uh, well, so we did issue a, a conditional recommendation that higher PEEP without lung recruitment maneuvers be used rather than lower PEEP in patients who had moderate to severe ARDS. So there is a lot of qualifications there. Um, I think it's important to, to understand what, what higher PEEP is, and that was an ongoing uh, source of, of many discussions in our subcommittee, um, because the ability to compare PEEP strategy to PEEP strategy is really difficult because everyone defines higher PEEP differently. Um, thankfully, most people seem to define lower PEEP relatively the same. So lower PEEP in almost all of these trials, except uh, except perhaps one, was the established lower PEEP FiO2 table that was used in the initial low tidal volume ventilation trial that was conducted by uh, the ARDS network. And so our comparator was actually the most standard uh, aspect of it. So we ended up defining higher PEEP as any PEEP strategy that was designed to give a higher PEEP level than the low PEEP table. Um, 
And incorporated within that means that there are strategies related to just using a high PFIO2 table, strategies related to um, uh, using lung compliance or driving pressure, strategies related to um, opening the lung as much as possible um, based on oxygen saturation or based on plateau pressure. So there were kind of a myriad of strategies within the higher PEEP group that were all relatively compared to a, a somewhat standard low PEEP group. Um, this would have been really difficult to do. Uh, thankfully, we had a, a network meta-analysis that had recently been published that um, made these kind of direct and indirect comparisons for all these different PEEP, higher PEEP strategies. And that helped us come up with our recommendation. And the evidence is pretty consistent throughout um, most systematic reviews that when you isolate to the moderate to severe ARDS subgroup, um, that higher PEEP seems to be associated with a mortality benefit when compared to lower PEEP. And so that's why we uh, came up with the recommendation. Um, and of course, it ended up being a conditional recommendation primarily because each of the strategies that contributed to that evidence is, is different. So um, whether you use a high PEEP FiO2 table, whether you titrate to maximal compliance, whether you use lung ultrasound to open the lung as much as possible, all of those different trials played into the mortality benefit that we saw. Great. And then let's uh, talk about the last uh, topic that you'll um, discuss, and then we'll start integrating them. Uh, neuromuscular blockades. Uh, who would like to take that one? I'll go ahead and take that one. Um, and, and this might be the, the more controversial recommendation. It may be confusing to people because I think what's most recent in people's mind is the ROSE trial, which is the, the largest trial of neuromuscular blockade that's been done to date, um, which is one reason why we wanted to update this question. Um, and we did issue a conditional recommendation that neuromuscular blockade should be used in patients with early, so less than 48 hours, and severe ARDS, so a PF ratio less than 100. Um, and so how did we come up with that recommendation, knowing that the ROSE trial said that there was no difference in mortality between neuromuscular blockade and, and placebo um, in patients with uh, moderate to severe ARDS? Well, it hinges on a little bit of the, the nuance and the details. So um, this, this conditional recommendation was generated from a pooled analysis of seven trials. And uh, ROSE was one of those seven trials and it, it had a lot of weight. When we looked at the pooled analysis broken down by neuromuscular blockade uh, compared to placebo in patients who were receiving deep sedation already, or neuromuscular blockade compared to light sedation, so the ROSE trial was the only study in that, uh, the mortality benefit was only seen in patients who were receiving deep sedation already. So those six trials that were not the ROSE trial that compared paralysis versus not paralysis, but your patient's still deeply sedated. And when we saw that really consistent uh, signal in terms of the mortality benefit, we felt strongly that it needed to be something um, that was at least a conditional recommendation that people are evaluating whether or not they should do it. Now, the subcommittee and the full panel itself debated for a really long time 
about whether or not we should add some type of qualifying statement to say, okay, you should only do it in people who are deeply sedated, but are experiencing ventilator dysynchrony or um, uh, who are any level of sedation and experiencing ventilator dyssynchrony or all patients who are deeply sedated. Um, but the problem really came into how we operationalize that type of qualifying statement. Um, what level of sedation should we recommend you initiate neuromuscular blockade at? How much dyssynchrony counts as too much dyssynchrony? And, and those weren't metrics that were used in the trial that we could look to evidence for to make that qualifying statement. And so ultimately, we ended up leaving off the qualifying statement and just saying, early severe ARDS, you should give uh, neuromuscular blockade as a conditional recommendation, which means that it's okay to decide that it doesn't make sense for your patient, right? And the important thing about the conditional recommendation is that there are people who will disagree with that statement because the evidence is uh, somewhat ambiguous on exactly how it should be executed. Um, so uh, I might let Nita talk about this also, but um, we know the ESICM guidelines recommended a, a strong recommendation against giving uh, routine neuromuscular blockade in patients with moderate to severe ARDS. And we don't actually disagree with that because we don't think it should be necessarily routine. And we don't think it should be in all patients with moderate to severe ARDS. It should be early. It should be in those with severe ARDS, and it should be a consideration. So it doesn't necessarily need to be the routine administration, but it should be in this patient, I need to consider whether or not it should be given. Yeah, that's a very nuanced approach. And I'll definitely want needed to comment on that because it, I agree with you from what you said. It sounds like you, you and the folks in Europe are saying the same thing, just in a slightly different way. But the nuance uh, approach should, definitely makes it an option rather than uh, folks thinking, oh, I just can't give it at all. Nita? Yeah, I would echo everything that Serena said. And I think just it's probably worth reviewing what exactly a strong versus conditional recommendation is. You know, a strong recommendation is something that applies to nearly all patients and could be reasonably used as like a performance indicator. So lung protective ventilation would fall under that. Uh, category. Conditional recommendations by definition are recommendations that apply to a majority of patients, but not all, and different choices may be appropriate for different patients. Um, so, you know, by by definition, a conditional recommendation is not a recommendation suggesting routine use of that intervention. Um, I think another thing to highlight is that, you know, as Serena went over the uh, mortality benefit was noted um, in, in neuromuscular blockade only when compared to deep sedation um, and not light sedation. And, you know, I, th I think this is, this is an area where you really have to think about like what is happening in clinical practice, right? Um, and I think for many people who spend a lot of time at the bedside, those folks that come into you with very severe ARDS, you know, P to F of, 90 on 80% FiO2. Um, most of them are, you know, I, and I feel like I, I wish there were more actual concrete data about this. And I weren't just talking about 
my uh, personal experience. Um, but uh, many of them are not tolerating light sedation as it is, uh, right? And so um, comparing that that comparison to to deep sedation is a clinically relevant and an important one that I think um, you know we see play out at the bedside. Um, and so how this has impacted my clinical practice is that um, I do tend to use this in early ARDS in patients in whom I, I cannot, um, I can't otherwise keep them awake, keep them on light sedation, and I'm needing to deeply sedate them anyway. Great. So let's uh, summarize those uh, uh, recommendations or suggestions. So um, in figure one, you'll state um, a strong recommendation against high-frequency oscillatory ventilation, a strong recommendation against prolonged recruitment maneuvers, um, and then you'll give strong recommendations in favor of lung protective ventilation and strong recommendations in favor of prone positioning. So if we were to summarize it according to um, ARDS criteria, severity of ARDS, based on your figure one, if a patient has ARDS, and the PF ratio is less than 300, um, you should be starting um, lung protective ventilation and considering steroids. If it's less than 200, uh, you should be considering a high PEEP strategy. If it's less than 150, um, you should be uh, performing prone uh, positioning. If it's less than 100, you should consider neuromuscular blockade. And if it's less than 80, you should consider uh, VV ECMO. So this raises the issue of two, two things. Um, if a patient is undergoing prone positioning, should they automatically uh, get considered for neuromuscular blockade? Because there's a difference of the, the PF ratio of 150 versus 100. And then also the effect of steroids combined with neuromuscular blockade and the risk of uh, neuromyopathy. So maybe you could comment on those two uh, points. Nita? So I, th I think that's a big unanswered question. Um, how do therapies used in combination, what happens when we use therapies used in combination? Are they synergistic or are they antagonistic? Um, you know, there's some some data to suggest that um, using higher PEEP in combination with prone positioning may have added benefit. Uh, there's also data that to data to suggest that the combination of steroids and neuromuscular blockade may increase the risk of ICU acquired uh, weakness. Um, and so these are these are questions that we unfortunately don't know the answer to just yet. Um, but in reality, these are things we do need to answer because people these these therapies are very rarely used alone and very frequently used in combination, whether it's one, two, uh, or uh, all of them, um, like patients who are on ECMO, uh, many of them have have undergone all of these therapies. So I think that's a that's an important area for further research. Serena, I I completely agree with with Nita as an unanswered question, um, but a really important concept. Um, and one thing I might just plug that it is important for for future research and. And if you'll remember, I noted some of the patient outcomes that both our patient representative and our, our group of clinicians and researchers also thought were important, like um, long-term cognitive impairment, quality, health-related quality of life, um, delirium, post-IC weakness. Um, those were identified as really important outcomes 
And yet we were unable to comment on almost all of those types of outcomes because they weren't collected or weren't evaluated in the trials themselves. Um, and I don't think we're going to be able to answer the type of question that you asked about these synergistic or antagonistic effects of combining these interventions until we're routinely evaluating the long-term kind of cognitive, physical, and uh, mental um, outcomes that our patients are going to be most interested in. Um, and there are core outcome sets that, that, you know, we could be using, but it is a lot of uh, extra time and, and expense to incorporate them into large trials. Um, but when we get down to it, I think it's what people are really going to want to know in addition to does it improve mortality or not. So maybe just a plug uh, to future researchers to start including these outcomes in their trials so we can answer this question. Yeah, so I'll play devil's advocate here and say, why don't we have that data? Um, it seems uh, strange that we needed a COVID pandemic to uh, get to the point where we can start addressing um, these concerns. We know we see so many of these ICU patients every day. Um, and obviously, there was the will during the COVID pandemic to get these questions answered. Um, going forward, um, what collaborations, uh, what networking teams are working together to answer the questions that weren't addressed? And maybe um, I'll turn to Nita here. What questions were you unable to address that you think going forward would be great uh, so that future researchers can work on this, uh, collaborations can develop? So in terms of unanswered questions, so, you know, many come to mind first, the specifics surrounding uh, some of these therapies, so dosing, duration, ster for steroids, peeps, what specific PEEP strategy when it comes to high PEEP, um, you know, what happens when you use these uh, therapies together. Uh, in terms of, there are also therapies that we didn't address um, that are used in a small, but I would say substantial portion of patients, things like pulmonary vasodilators or alternative ventilator modes. Um, in terms of long-term outcomes research, I do think that that's probably the most important thing. We want to make sure we're not um, looking at, uh, we want to make sure there's not some trade-off between short-term mortality and like long-term uh, morbidity and disability, which is really important to patients. I think one silver lining of COVID was the there was a rise in post-ICU clinics, um, and they can potentially serve as an avenue to help facilitate some of this long-term outcomes research. Um, I will say, as somebody who sees patients in post-ICU follow-up, this is not going to be a, a foolproof thing because you still have many of the issues that long-term outcomes researchers face, um, you know, difficulties with, with follow-up, um, difficulties like getting either getting your patient in because they're, you know, maybe still in a nursing home or not uh, physically able to actually get to a clinic appointment. Those, those things still come up uh, quite a bit in clinical care, but um, my hope is that it's a, a step in the right direction and that we can use uh, some of the, we can leverage the rise in post-ICU clinics and the increased attention to post-ICU care into, into um, improved research on long-term outcomes. Yeah, we definitely need that research. And to be inflammatory, I could ask you all, maybe Serena, you know, did you look at vitamin C? Did you look at ivermectin? <laughs> um, 
<laughs> I suspect you'll didn't for good reasons, but maybe comment on that. And then also, um, what are the weaknesses in this uh, uh, clinical guideline, clinical practice guidelines there? All, all guidelines have weaknesses. And what do you want? Uh, and I think you've the fact that you included, included the practical considerations really makes the reviewers or the um, listeners and readers know that, you know, there's a lot of nuance to this. But uh, what to- take-home message do you want for them in terms of the weaknesses, uh, what areas that they need to be very cognizant of? Yeah, um, you know, we did not look at vitamin C or ivermectin. Um, I I will say that I think at the time of when we were deciding what questions to address, enough from what we knew of the landscape, enough literature or trials had not been completed um, in order to at that time when we were coming up with our PICO questions in order to address them. Uh, and that's all I'll say about that. Um, <laughs> you know, in, in terms of uh, what what weaknesses are uh, exist, um, I think it's mostly that the guidelines are inherently limited by the available evidence. Um, the experts involved in crafting these guidelines, you know, we really tried to, to add nuance and interpretation of the evidence, but we were still kind of beholden to the trials and study that had actually been completed. And so the majority of recommendations are conditional because there are so many kind of unanswered questions left in the trial space. Um, and and many of those as needs that are around the nuances of of how we executed what steroid regimen to use, whether it's what what brand or what uh, molecule, what uh, dose, what duration, um, and other other aspects of it. And and so my my biggest thing is is I think there are weaknesses related to the guidelines because there's weaknesses in the evidence base. Um, and our takeaway from this, our goal with these guidelines is really to try to help provide some clear standards on what we can provide standards on. Um, So most clinicians don't have time to read and synthesize every trial, every systematic review that comes out because it is so much these days. And so we really think that guidelines are, are, are necessary so that the experts can read all the evidence and interpret them and add some nuance to help inform the bedside clinician um, of what are the standard things that should be applied to every ARDS patient and what are some things that they should be thinking about for those conditional recommendations. And so our goal is to synthesize and, and simplify in a way while retaining the nuance. Great. Nita? Um, that was really well said. Um, I guess another weakness is that we didn't address vitamin C. Um, totally one of the major weaknesses. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm just kidding. But um, in, in, in any case, yeah, I think we were limited by the evidence that was available. Um, I think that, um, you know, I, I guess I don't necessarily see issuing conditional recommendations as a weakness, but it is not as satisfying as issuing strong recommendations, right? Um, because there, this is, it's not like you've, there's this, this, there's this thing that's clearly going to help everybody. So, you know, you still have to, you still have to be thoughtful about your usage of, of all of this, which again, we tried very, we tried very much to reflect in, in the text and in the figures 
Um, so, you know, I, I think the other, I think another weakness is that like there are certain uh, therapies that we were not able to address. And I, again, like this is because of the lack of available data, but um, things like pulmonary vasodilators, um, uh, they're used in a reasonable number of patients, but we have no, we still have no um, recommendation on this, neither in this guideline nor in the first iteration. So Nita, maybe you could comment on that because this has been a challenging issue for a number of clinicians, and it seems as though practice differs based on city, based on hospital, based on state. So um, when do you usually initiate um, uh, pulmonary vasodilators? Are there any other are there any conditions that need to be met? Do they need to really be on lung protective, proning, PEEP? Uh, when do you tend to? And I, I'm just asking your uh, clinical practice or your sense of what the literature says. Sure. So, you know, in terms of what the literature says, pulmonary vasodilators can um, transiently improve hypoxia, but have not been demonstrated to have any um, any any impact on any patient-centered outcomes, mortality, days on the vent, things like that. Um, so I, you know, I, I don't think it's the, it's something to, to never use. I do think they have utility in certain patients. Primarily, I use it as a short-term therapy in very unstable patients um, who I am either trying, you know, waiting for the ECMO team to get there and um, their, their oxygenation is very marginal and I just want to get them to cannulation. Or if there's like, if I need to take them to an imaging study that is very much needed, um, or you know, when we're transporting patients from referral hospitals, from outside hospitals to our campus, we we sometimes use um, uh, pulmonary vasodilators in that setting. So, uh, you know, it, it is really primarily very short-term use to facilitate either, um, you know, either something like ECMO or to... Um, uh, transport a patient. And then I, I typically stop it very quickly after that. And then uh, I'll pull you into this, Serena. One other question was feeding. So uh, it seems that some clinicians um, are quite happy to uh, feed their patients uh, entrally, um, PF less than 100 on neuromuscular blockades and others aren't. Um, where do you think the evidence is? Uh, and uh, can we get some uh, agreement? Nina? And yeah. then Serena, oh, oh Serena. No, I was well. I was just going to say. I think um, you know when it comes to feeding. We, we, interestingly, we didn't even uh, talk about addressing that, but I think it's mostly covered by the Aspen guidelines, um, which again are are limited by the the evidence that exists, which is is controversial. Um, you know, in general, I think that our goal is to um, feed more than we used to in the past, probably, right? So to do enteral nutrition when possible, um, and to not necessarily do it super early within the 20, first 24 hours, but not to leave people NPO for weeks and weeks and weeks, just because they have severe ARDS. Um, so, you know, in general, I think based on the, um, 
based on Aspen guidelines, I try to initiate nutrition support uh, within kind of 24 to 48 hours. Um, and I tend to use enteral nutrition over parenteral nutrition. Um, I think the evidence basis is, is not high for that, but um, based on the accumulated studies we have, that's what I tend to abide by. Great. Okay. So we've had a really great discussion and I've learned a lot. So um, as we wind towards the end of this podcast, I'm going to give each of you the opportunity to just summarize for our audience any key messages. I um, really appreciate the two of you taking the time to share these updates. And I appreciate also the, uh, I mean, I, I was just blown away when I looked at these figures. I'm like, finally, um, guidelines that are actually practical that sh- allow readers and listeners to know there's a lot of nuance and uh, each patient should be treated individually um, according to these recommendations. So I'll start with Serena and then let uh, Nita have the last word. Serena? Well, I just want to, I'm going to brag for Nita because she solely developed that figure one, which I think is going to be in in several presentations for for many years to come. Uh, It's a great figure, I agree. you know, I think the the goal here, we hope, is is to help clinicians at the bedside um, while recognizing that there's still a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of research to be done to answer some of these unanswered questions. Um, but and there is certainly very certainly nuance in how this can be applied at the bedside. But our hope is that we start to form a basis of guidelines and recommendations that can be built upon for the future and help patients with ARDS receive the best evidence care possible. Okay, Nita, I'm really glad you did figure one. It's fantastic. Give it the last word. Thanks. Um, Aesthetics are very important to me. Um, So, you know, I would just say the whole purpose of clinical practice guidelines is really to help translate clinical trial results into real life clinical decision making at the bedside. And our hope is that this document provides easily digestible guidance for the practicing clinician, not just by putting all this data together to come up with the recommendations themselves, but also by going over the precautions and the practical considerations that one needs to consider in order to you know, in real life, apply these recommendations to individual patients. Um, My hope also is that by highlighting some of these um, unknowns, some of these precautions, practical considerations, um, that it it, it spurs uh, additional research to try to answer some of these questions. So, you know, they're they're impacting quite a lot of patients with, uh, with ARDS. A big thank you to Dr. Kadir and Dr. Sahetia. And a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.